morning, Redemption Church. I am so excited to be here, and it's warm inside, and what about that sunshine outside? I know it's cold, but I mean, it is absolutely gorgeous out there, and honestly, if I be honest, I like my winter clothes better, so it works really well for me, and I love hats. I have a whole drawer full of hats, and so... Um, this is thanks the Thanksgiving week, and so I thought I'd start off with a Thanksgiving verse to start off Thanksgiving week. It says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. And that's Psalm 104. Um, so I would like to welcome everybody again. My name is Debbie. I'm part of the prayer response team down here. So please, don't hesitate. Um, and if you're a little shy to come down during the service, I understand. It, is a it can be a little loud down here also. But Brian and myself love to pray. Just grab us, and we'll pray with you anywhere. Uh, for first-time guests, a special welcome to you. Uh, we have, back at the welcome table, a special gift for you. It's movie tickets, so we think that's pretty cool, and hopefully you do too. So head back there, and um, we can give those to you. We oh, also back at the welcome table. There is a bin back there, um, and what that bin is, it's right next to it. Um, and what it is is it's a place for us to do some donations for the Reach Ministry. We have an awesome ministry that we've partnered with uh, that for um, downtown Seattle for the homeless ministry, and right now we're collecting things. There's a list back there of things that would be really special for them. They have, they have needs and everything. So take a look back there, and if you have something to donate, please do. There are Connect cards in your cup holders. Uh, they have lots of things on there. Um, if you could fill that out for us, we'd really, really appreciate that. There's also a QR code that leads you to announcements and anything, sermon notes. Um, also, it, I think it takes you to the website. So it can take you to the devotions and everything. Hey, this week, on Friday, did you see anything special about that devotion? Yeah? Who did, right? I mean, come on. Expository teaching of a devotion and puppies. I mean, how much better can that get? They had puppies, and they were so cute. So check that out. It was Friday. I'm not sure what number that was, but you can go back a couple days and check that out if you haven't done that so far. Um, we're continuing to transition from Aplos to Church Center. So um, please do that. Get your online giving um, moved over to that. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to go ahead and pass it off to Pastor Jesse. Hey, can we thank Debbie for everything that she does? Hey, I'm, I'm Jesse. I'm the dance choreographer for the Redemption Church, and I'm really glad that you came to visit today. God's working in this little church plant, and it's been amazing to see. Our building campaign is called the Revival Project, and man, this is an opportunity coming in on the end of the year to attempt to match this $250,000 gift commitment that's coming to our building campaign. Someone's going to give a quarter million dollars to our building campaign. Can we celebrate that? Because it's absolutely amazing. 
And so here it is. If you have gifts to give, if you have not yet participated in the Revival Project, please do. Go to redemptionwashington.com slash revival. You can click on the Revival Project tab and you can commit to the Revival Project. But especially now, as the year comes to a close, this is an excellent opportunity for year-end giving. What is even better than commitments is actual gifts. And so if you had a plan at some point to dispense gifts over the course of the two-year campaign, but you have the ability to give it earlier rather than later, let's do that because it allows us to have down payment money, which is the biggest obstacle in purchasing property, especially for fully independent church plants like ours. And so if that's something that God has laid on your heart, would you give as we approach the end of the year? Would you give so that the revival project is able to be funded so that the, Re uh, the Redemption Church can purchase property so that right here in the most atheistic city in the U.S., in the least church state in the U.S., we can literally claim ground for the gospel and push back the lines of darkness in a militant act of spiritual conquest to see to it that God is able to bring revival in Washington. Amen. Let's go before God. Let's pray. I also have a quick question before we pray. If you came here because you received a postcard in the mail welcoming you to the neighborhood, would you raise your hand? All right. If that's you, if that's you, let, raise your hand. Let me see if anybody, anybody received our mailers. Okay. Gotcha. Let's go before the Lord. Let's pray. And then we're going to stand and worship. God, Thank you for the Redemption Church. Thank you for the amazing things you're doing in hearts and lives. Thank you, God, for reports of marriages saved. Thank you, God, for, for those who are sharing their faith for the very first time. Thank you, God, for stories of reconciliation and forgiveness and radical repentance as your spirit is at work through your people. We're here to glorify you and give you thanks, oh Jesus. We're going to open your word. We pray that you would, we would hear directly from you today, oh God. I lift up my skeptical friend in the audience, and I pray, Lord, that your spirit would draw upon his or her heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand, let's worship God together today.
other name but the name that is Jesus. He who was and still is and will be through it all. So come on, may in the space between all the things unseen and this reckoning. I know I will never be
take communion together would you take a moment grab your element 
Raise your hand if you need an usher to bring you elements. And go before God to do inventory on your heart. 1 Corinthians, a book we studied verse by verse, into which we are then beholden before God, tells us to examine ourselves before we drink the cup and eat in remembrance of the broken body of Jesus. Would you take a moment in prayer, go before the Lord, confess sin, forgive those who have wronged you, particularly within the body of Christ. Go before him. take the bread from your elements, Redemption Church. This was the Passover meal Jesus had gathered in the upper room with his disciples. It was time to observe something that had a tradition going back to the original days of the Exodus, whereupon the wrath of God would pass over the house that was marked by the smeared blood of the lamb. This Passover meal of unleavened bread were the elements on the table when Jesus took them and said, this is my body, equating himself rightly with what the Passover elements had foreshadowed for generations and millennia. And now it is his body. As often as we do this, we're to do so in remembrance of him. And we do so as the body of Christ. As we saw in 1 Corinthians, each of us has unique spiritual gifts. Those gifts complement one another in the way that the eye complements the body and the hand complements the body. Two Christians of diverse gifts both complement one another as the body of Christ. So we are nothing short of the body of Christ here in communion, remembering the broken body of Christ, whereby our sins are atoned for. Every last one of them, not in part, but completely and forevermore. Thank you, Jesus, for the grace. Redemption Church, would you take and eat in remembrance of the broken body of Jesus? Jesus, we remember your broken body, the price by which our sins are atoned for, paid in full. We, as the body of Christ, remember the broken body of Christ. Would you ready the cup, Redemption Church? We are spoiled rotten in the new covenant. We do not see the blood of the old covenant, the sacrificial lamb's blood pouring out the day of Passover, mixing into the Kidron brook below the very body of water over which Jesus would pass the night leading to the crucifixion. And the very mixture that would flow from his side, water and the sacrificial lamb's blood. Every lamb sacrificed in the Old Testament was symbolic, was anticipatory, was prophetic to this, the capital L, Lamb of God, as we see him in Revelation. This is what our sin caused. Let's drink in remembrance of the spilled blood of Jesus. Redemption Church, take and drink. Some of our team has already taken the elements together. Jesus, we remember you your spilled blood 
May communion bind us together and may it remind us of the seriousness of our sin. It cost God the broken body and spilled blood of his sin to atone for the sins of his people forevermore. May it unite us in one communion across all who confess Jesus as Lord. May it unite us across generations, connecting us even to those who called upon the name of Yahweh in the Old Testament before they knew the name of Jesus. And may it call our hearts heavenward, where we will one day eat with you and drink with you there in the heavenly kingdom. In the meantime, we eat in remembrance and we drink in remembrance. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated and welcome the legendary Pastor Mike. Not, not sure legendary about what, but why don't you uh, bow your heads and just take a moment to continue in a spirit of worship. You know, every time I take communion, it brings at least my mind back to Jesus. Just Jesus. And as we quiet our hearts and quiet our spirit before him, we think of Jesus. This week has been an interesting week for my family. We lost a loved one, a family member, and I found myself looking for ways to process the shortness of life compared to eternity. And in that process, I was taken back to a, a little chorus. I found myself reciting over and over and over this week. And God was using that to refocus my thoughts refocus my energies, my purpose, and it was all around Jesus. And I would sit and think of the name of Jesus. And think of the chorus that says, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. And I started to think of the name of Jesus in our scriptures. And I know that there's over 200 different references to him. And I was asking myself, what does that mean? What well, means everything, that Jesus is everything. And it goes on to say, Master, Savior, Jesus, like the fragrance after the rain. And I thought of that.
phrase. Fragrance after the rain. I thought, is, is there a fragrance like the rain? Well, lo and behold, I found out that uh, at least our marketing gurus have been able to bottle a, a perfume, a cologne that is called simply rain. And it has a mixture of perictor that is supposed to be representative of the rain after a dry season. And I thought how Jesus is that mixture of the earth and of the sky coming together and giving off an odor that only it can do. And I know that many of us have walked out on a rainy morning that has turned to sunshine and we've smelled a very unique odor, which is a mixture of our earth and the atmosphere around it. And only God in Jesus Christ can create that. And the little verse goes on, Jesus, 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 let all heaven and earth proclaim. And I couldn't think of anything but how all the creation of the earth cries out the name of Jesus. And that we as a church cry out the name of Jesus as we seek to do his work and his glory here in the Seattle community. That we will proclaim his greatness, his love, his sacrifice to those around us. And then it closes by saying, kings and kingdoms shall all pass away. But there's no one by any other name but Jesus. And we recognize when it's all finished, when it's all said and done, the only thing that exists is Jesus. So I would like you to join me and just say the name of Jesus softly, quietly. Just say Jesus. Just say Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Nothing else matters except Jesus. And so as we take this offering this morning, we want to come back to the starting point, the beginning, and say, Jesus, this is all about you. It's not about us. It's not about what we can do. It's all about you. 
and what you're choosing to do through us. So thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It starts with an artful genealogy, and it ends with the Great Commission. This is the Gospel of Matthew. God fulfills absolutely every promise he makes. His perfect faithfulness spans decades, encompasses centuries, crosses millennia. We have studied Ruth, a prequel to the Gospels. Today, we explore the fulfillment. After this, we will experience Isaiah, observing Christ's perfect fulfillment of everything that was foretold about him. Matthew 3:16 and 17 read, When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the fulfillment of all hope prophesied in the Old Testament. He stands at the apex of scripture. All of history has always been his story. He is our hope. He is our savior. In him alone, we can find fulfillment. His name is Jesus. Would you like to hear parables directly from Jesus in his word today? We're in Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 24. I don't need to tell you this. The devil is at work in the world through people, and some of them claim the name of Christ. This is my summation of the parable of the wheat and the weeds, also known as the wheat and the tares. Matthew chapter 13 Beginning in verse 24, it contains the parable of the wheat and the weeds. We foreshadowed this text. We're going to recall this text. It's one of a number of agricultural metaphors in Jesus' parables. And now he's going to convey wheat in a field and weeds among them to the state of the world we live in. And he's going to give this parable and explain it thereafter. But in between giving the parable of the wheat and the weeds and explaining the parable of the wheat and the weeds are two more little parables. These are one contiguous train of thought into the other parables that we will study in our devotions and in our curriculum this week. So if you go to redemptionwashington.com, you can download the free curriculum. If you need the printed version, if you prefer the printed version, those are available on Amazon. If you order them now, you'll have them in time for your first session. But this is parable time. Last week, we saw Jesus' teaching on blasphemy, the quote-unquote unforgivable sin. It is unforgiven because those who commit blasphemy, particularly against the Spirit of God, will not be forgiven. They will not be forgiven because they will not repent. And now he goes into parables. They did not have ears to hear what the Spirit was saying through the Son of God. The same thematic, thematic rhythm of the opening letters to churches in Revelation is echoed in Jesus' parables. And now come more parables containing within them a fulfillment of Psalm 78, verse 2. Yet another prophecy fulfilled in Jesus. Hence this series title, Fulfillment. 
even Jesus' use of parables was prophesied. So even as he used parables, he fulfilled prophecy. This is Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while people were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat, and left. When the plants sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. The landowner's servants came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he told them. So, do you want us to go and pull them up? The servants asked him. No, he said. When you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. We're going to talk about this. Let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest, I'll tell the reapers, get the weeds first and then tie them in bundles to burn them, but collect the wheat in my barn. So this is the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Jesus is going to explain it later, but I'll give hopefully what is a helpful amount of insight as to the original intent. There is a poisonous weed called a darnel. And the darnel resembles wheat as it grows up. It's not until it matures that you can tell that it's darnel and not wheat. Moreover, the way in which its root system grows allows it to entangle very easily with the roots of wheat. There was a Roman law forbidding the act of sowing darnel in a competing farmer's field, which means that Jesus's parable was likely realistic. But the fact that darnel has, is lar largely speculated to be the particular kind of weed that's at play here has also caused a lot, of, a lot of pastors, a lot of churches, a lot of even Bible commentaries to get fixated on that possibility rather than dealing with what the text actually says. Spoiler, Jesus tells us that the field is the world, not necessarily or exclusively just the church. Moreover, we've seen Jesus sparring with and then outright condemning in our previous chapter, the Pharisees. And so it's easy then to immediately convey the weed to the Pharisees, to pseudo martyreo is the Greek word for it, false disciple, a fake believer, someone who would feign Christianity, but whose heart was far from God, who was unregenerate, didn't have the Holy Spirit of God, didn't repent from sin, felt no conviction for sin. There was no supernatural love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control emanating from someone, having been miraculously converted and brought from death to life by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God upon their confession of Jesus as Lord, but they sure do look like it from the outside. Now, this does not preclude the false believers within the church. It certainly does include them. But Jesus tells us overtly, and you'll see as we continue in the text, that the field is not just the church. It's the whole world. So the devil is at work in the world through people, some of whom are in the church. This, this passage has just a few little quick phrases that seem to fly by, but they're worth, they're worth eternity the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. All right, another spoiler in Jesus, to, toward Jesus' explanation. It's he, the son of man, the fulfillment of what was prophesied in Daniel chapter 7. He 
saves his people. And this is the man who sowed good seed in the field. This man right here, Jesus will reveal, that's me. This is the kingdom of heaven, the spiritual realm wherein God is at work among his people. A man who sowed good seed in his field. And look at this, but while people were sleeping, we aren't aware we aren't always aware of the devil's sabotage. In fact, that's what makes it sabotage. It's clandestine, surreptitious nature, leaves it undetected. We're sleeping. We're sleeping. And so we're unaware of the fact that the devil is at work. Moreover, this is all the more striking, the fact that the devil would go to great lengths to see to it that those who do his will don't think he exists further confounds the issue. I have read the entire Satanic Bible. Welcome to the Redemption Church. Like and subscribe. I did it because I traded reading assignments with a militant atheist. He gave me the Satanic Bible, and he wrote the kindest dedication I've ever received on the inside cover. So I find myself being a, an Orthodox pastor, biblically Orthodox pastor who cherishes, sort of, his Satanic Bible. God help me. And my wife made me take a photo of it and throw it away. She's like, that's not staying in my house. But what I gave him to read in the reading assignment trade was far more dangerous than what he gave me, the Gospel of John. Yeah, he's a Christian now. But in the Satanic Bible, it's written originally, it was, it was a prank. Anton LaVey was not allowed to start a club for atheists and receive tax-exempt status, so he said we're going to be a church, but it's going to be a church for the devil. And so his book is, a, is, is really a, a manifesto on secular humanism. It's interspersed, oddly enough, with a bunch of weird, weird spell stuff. So that's a bit self-defeating, and obviously there are a lot of people who actually take it literally, unfortunately. But this is the nature precisely of the devil. He would rather have a bunch of people who do exactly his will, thinking themselves in the right and professing not even to believe in him. The enemy did this. It is the scandal of the millennia that God would be held responsible for what the devil has done. Right now, the devil may be at work through people in this world, including those who profess to know Christ, but there is a day coming. We see it in the parable of the wheat and the weeds, where the weeds are gathered up, they are bound, and they are burned. Numerous times throughout these parables, numerous times, we see that they are burned in a place that is described as accompanied by the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, a woke pastor has a hard time describing that. It is hell. And there's suffering, there's suffering, there's separation from God. The full fruits of our sin. Are you a weed? Do you know? Would you examine your heart as we continue in the text? While people were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weed among the wheat and left. When the plants sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. The landowner's servants came to him and they asked him, didn't you sow good seed? And then the very next step is the very next, the very, the very same question that even comes about today. Okay, so landowner represents Jesus in the parable. Why don't you just yank up the weeds? Why don't you just eradicate evil? This is even, there's even a term for this. It's such a common debate. 
It's been raging for millennia. It ought not, but the same idea, it's called theodicy, is at work in this parable. Why don't you just pull up the weeds? Why don't you just eradicate the devil? God, why don't you just kill the devil? The devil's as good as dead. He's already been proclaimed. His doom is spelled out. We read it at a really high volume that capped out the mic last week. But we know this. It's already been decided. God has done everything that he said he would do. He says he will do this and he will do it. The date is set. Only God the Father knows. In the meantime, we are still subject to his attacks. But the result, the end result, what is produced by the redemptive plan of God is nothing short of an eternity of perfection where God himself wipes the tears from our eyes. There's no more grieving, no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain, no more death. The old order of things has passed away and the dwelling of God is with men. And there the heavenlies remain in perfect peace in the direct presence of God who serves as nothing short as the source of light for the heavenly kingdom. And there absolutely will never be another angelic rebellion. Everyone on earth will, everyone who lives in God's heaven will know forevermore that we have been redeemed and what it cost. There stands the lamb who looks as though he has been slain and yet he is alive, bearing on his body for eternity the marks whereby our atonement was funded in full. And so there will never be, there will never again be the weeds. That is the result. And that state lasts forever. We have merely the meantime, which even if your life were magnified in length a hundredfold, would not, would not come close to one one thousandth of one percent of eternity. Because even one trillionth of eternity is eternally long. God has already spelled the doom of evil. It is written in his word in which he has a perfect track record of doing everything that he said he would do. God, who never lies, has already said that he is going to do it, and so it is as good as done. So in the meantime, we still await this. An enemy did this. Jesus told him, have you held God responsible for what the devil has done? This is blasphemy. Would you repent from this? Look to last week's sermon for more on this. But if you ascribe to God that which is evil, revile the Holy Spirit, even though you've come into this place and you've encountered the presence of God, you've been drawn upon by the Holy Spirit, you are aware of the heavenly gift, the goodness of the word of God, and you revile him still, God will leave you to your devices and treat you with absolute perfect fairness. Exactly what you want, what you demand, you will receive. It is nothing short of your own devices that you will be left without grace and therefore treated, un therefore treated fairly. Grace, by its nature, is an undeserved treatment. If it were something that we deserve, it wouldn't be grace. That would just be fair treatment. But the fact that we receive grace at all, though every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that is unfair. It is grace upon grace. So would you not revile the Holy Spirit? Would you acknowledge the truth? The devil is responsible for evil and God has the redemptive plan whereby it is all ended. And even now, even as the enemy sows weeds among the wheat, God is able. He will redeem absolutely anything. All things are fair game for God to work in accordance with his sovereign plan, leading to irrevocable, permanent, eternal good forevermore. Verse 30 says, 
let them both grow together. Let them both grow together. They're, they're here. They're among us. They're with us, side by side, growing with us until, say this word with me, Redemption Church, the harvest. There's a day coming. Each one of us must stand before God and give an account for what we've done, whether good or evil. See 2 Corinthians chapters 4, 5, and 6. See James. See Revelation. Until the harvest. Verse 29 is one that people have struggled with for a while. And I say that, I mean, wow, really lightly. That when we botch this, the results are catastrophic. No, Jesus said, when you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Because weeds would entangle with the wheat. If you were to pull up the weeds, you would also pull up wheat too. But this does not mean that speculating as to the salvation of someone might somehow cause a Christian to lose his or her salvation. That's not possible. Rather, what it indicates is this. If you pull something up and you, th- you say to yourself, this is a weed, if you open your hand, you may be looking at wheat. Because there are some weeds who look like wheat, but there are also some weeds that turn out later to actually be wheat. You don't know. You don't have the authority to say. So you let them both grow together. When mankind has tried to pull up the weeds and distinguish between the saved and the unsaved and taken it upon ourselves to punish people for their sins, the results have been catastrophic. See the Episcopal Inquisition, the Roman Inquisition, the Portuguese Inquisition, the Spanish Inquisition. Catastrophic wrong. All carried out in the name of Roman Catholicism. Moreover, the Crusades, though retaliatory in nature, were horrific. Moreover, Mary the first took it upon herself to distinguish among those who were true believers and those who were not. And she slaughtered those whom she labeled heretics. Her nickname posthumously is rightly Bloody Mary. She slaughtered anyone whom she believed to be a heretic. But she couldn't, she just couldn't quell this one pain in the tail and John Knox who would publish leaflets that were distributed throughout her kingdom rebuking her for her own heresies and there's this jerk named John Calvin and all these rabble rousers some dude Luther maybe was his name yeah I don't know it's a printing press it'll never it'll never make it what is that gizmo She couldn't stop it. No matter how many Protestants she burned, she could not stop a move of God. Now, historically, these are all examples of places in which the separation of church and state did not exist. And so there was no distinction between the church and the state. And as a result, those who would be considered heretics would be considered not only enemies of the church, but enemies of the state. Therefore, punishable supposedly by law. Do you see how catastrophic it is when we take it upon ourselves to pull up the weeds along with the wheat? No, we let them both grow together. You don't know what's happening in someone's heart. Don't self-deputize to come in and punish evil. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, said the Lord. You don't know how much you don't know. 
Moreover, if it is in fact a believer with whom you're dealing, we've been given the perfect process whereby to confront believers. And it's coming up December 11th. That's when we study Matthew chapter 18. And there we see the very simple process. Very simple process. Oh, please write this down. It's so simple. It's so simple. If someone sins against you, everybody, I want you to breathe in with me. Slowly breathe out. I'm going to tell you something that is evidently the most difficult and complex, mind-bending, intellect-confounding step ever written. Go to them. Put your hands on the handrest. Press the recliner button if you need to. I know. You're like, Jesse, that was so deep and heavy, I just forgot my phone number. It is amazing to me how easily, otherwise really intelligent Christians can become incredibly stupid when it comes to this. Don't pull up the weeds. Don't take it upon yourself to distinguish because you don't know. Matthew 18 gives you a process, and step one is not Twitter. Step one is go to that person individually, not their mom, not your email, not Facebook, to the person who has sinned, one-on-one. -on -one. And by the way, feel free to talk for more than five minutes. In fact, talk more than once. And then if they still do not repent from sin, then you still don't go to Twitter. I know you're ready to tweet, Elon. Just bring two or three witnesses with you. And then if they still don't repent, they're looking at you, putting your finger in your face. I'm like, no, I will not stop committing cannibalism. I like eating people. Okay, and they still refuse to repent. And you're like, this is getting unsanitary. Then you go before the larger body. You see, there's, there's, there, there are catastrophic results when we try to pull up the weeds ourselves. Okay, you don't know who's actually saved and who isn't saved. And if someone is someone who professes the name of Christ, going through the steps prescribed in Matthew 18 lead to a point at which if they still haven't confronted, though you have brought it up, and then you've come with two or three witnesses and they still don't repent. You've gotten before the larger body of believers, which in the context of the redemption church is your small group. If they still don't repent, then the word says that you treat them as you would a non-believer. This would be excommunication from the church. And that was what was exercised in the examples that I gave leading up to the point at which the state and the church converged. This means that you start over again with the gospel. If somebody can be confronted one-on-one -on -one and still so no conviction for sin, no repentance from sin, and they be confronted again by three to four people, then they still don't repent. They can be confronted again by a larger body of believers and they still continue in their sin. Then, evidently, you're dealing with someone who is not Christian. They're not saved. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't revere the word of God. They don't love God. They don't love his people. There's no love, joy, peace, patience, there's no conviction, there's no repentance. And so we start over again with the gospel. They're excommunicated from fellowship and they become like those whom we evangelize. I have never seen Matthew 18 fail. When it's done properly, it has never failed. But when it is botched, the results are always catastrophic. 
We don't pull up the weeds with the wheat because we don't know who is saved and who's not saved. We don't have that authority. God is the one who sorts sheep from the goats, the weed from the wheat. We've seen this imagery of God gathering his wheat into the barn before. Do you remember this from earlier in our series? This is Matthew chapter three, verse 11. Here's the voice of John the Baptist. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I'm not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, foreshadowing what was to come at Pentecost in Acts chapter two. His winnowing shovel in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat in, gather his wheat into the barn. Can I just circle a word that I think means a lot here? His wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn with a fire that never goes out. There's always this brilliant transition whereby the metaphor in the parable gives way to the actual. The metaphor suddenly transitions and it's usually right there with the fire that never goes out. We're not, we're not talking about, we're not talking about a, a fi, uh, like a, a farmer who's also a pyromaniac. No, we're talking about hell. Right? This, this imagery comes up over and over again. There's a reason for this. It's because God wants you to understand this. So when we arrive at verse 31 of Matthew 24, we see the first of two more parables coming up before Jesus' explanation of the parable of the weeds and the wheat. You guys want to hear another parable? All right, here's Matthew 13, verse 31. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. It's beautiful. We've seen a mustard seed before in Jesus' teaching. Just with the faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. This on the heels of a teaching about forgiving one another. The disciples had watched Jesus perform miracles when Jesus speaks of the necessity of forgiving your brother over and over again. They're like, okay, that's hard. I need you to increase our faith. Jesus' response is, with the faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Now the mustard seed comes back into the imagery. This, this mustard seed, it is smaller than the tip of a pin. It's a tiny, tiny, inconceivably small, even smaller than most ball bearings. It's like a half a millimeter in diameter. It's so tiny. And this is what would grow to become a huge tree. This describes the state of things in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven on the earth. We see Luke and Mark use the term kingdom of God. Matthew, however, cites Jesus using the term kingdom of heaven. There weren't a whole lot of people here. When we get to the very next chapter, we're going to see Jesus feed the 5,000 Remember, Matthew's gospel is not chronological necessarily. John's gospel is more chronological. And in John chapter six, we see the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, or he feeds the 4,000 in, uh, in Mark eight and Matthew 15, and then Jesus walks on water, and then he's abandoned by massive hordes of people who have, have a hard time with his teaching. In fact, what he teaches is what we just did. It's a foreshadowing of communion. He looks at the whole crowd, he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. They're like, this is a difficult teaching. Who can accept it? And they walk away. But the disciples remain. Peter 
Usually bumbling speaks the truth here. He says, the, the, the truth of God is found only in you. The words of hope, the words of life are only found in you. Where else are we gonna go, Jesus? This is revealed to him by God. So Jesus had massive crowds of people that would follow him, but he was skeptical of massive crowds and he would thin the herd and he would test their faith. Only those who lingered with him, am I preaching to somebody right now, while they didn't understand what he was saying or doing, would make it to the upper room where they would see, this is my body. This is the bread of the Passover. This is my blood. It is the cup. That is where the teaching made sense. But the only people who lingered, the 5,000, they're all long gone. It's just Jesus with 11 of his 12 disciples. One of them is about to be inhabited by the devil for crying out loud. It's so few. From 5,000 to just 11. Jesus would thin out the crowd. There were only there were only so few people that followed Jesus truly believing in him. When Jesus would make free snacks, everybody would come out of the woodwork. In fact, at one point they're like, "Hey, he makes food. Let's make him king. King food." That was their desire because that's our desire. When we come when it comes to the government, if we're honest, we're a bunch of lazy bums and we want a government that feeds us. And we find a king who can make sandwiches, then we're like, you're president now. But Jesus had no interest, no interest in mere earthly politics. That will be the case in the world's only perfect form of government. It exists in heaven above in a theocratic monarchy. Theocratic because it's God. Monarchy because there's a throne and he's king. In this theocratic monarchy, the monarch does not gain his resources by taxing the daylights out of his constituents, but because he genuinely has actually limitless resources and from the abundance of his omnipotence, we are more than provided for forevermore. It's the only perfect form of government. It's the only perfect form of government. All right, our, our constitutional republic here in a capitalistic society, it works pretty well, but it's got some flaws. But wow, when Jesus is on the throne, that is a perfect form of governance. So Jesus did attract huge crowds. And some people thought of him as a political revolutionary, there to oust the Roman occupiers. You're going to kick Rome out? You're going to lead a coup? You're going to teach us ninja skills? Are you going to give us F-35 lightnings? <laughs> like, what are, you, what are you going to do, Jesus, to lead a political coup? And then Jesus had nothing to do with any of that. In fact, his words about the temple, when we get to chapter 24, you're going to see, were really bleak. Not one stone's going to be left unturned on your temple. No, he came to actually fulfill what was actually promised by God to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and 22, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through this covenant with Abraham. This is the whole purpose of the book of Romans, that this covenant that God made, it begins with deep cosmology, that you know, that you know, you know, universes don't create themselves. Get real, Jack. You know this, and you've always known it. You've always known it. The eternal power and divine nature of God have been patently obvious to you, but you come up with excuses to remain in sin and you suppress that truth. 
And this has been happening over and over again. Using the archetypal paradigm of Sodom and Gomorrah, he shows us how every one of us does this. But God made a covenant with a man named Abraham. And this nation was Israel, God's elect, God's chosen ones, not the descendants of Esau. That is the nation of Edom. See the book of Obadiah for why God would despise the whole nation of Edom. No, in the breach of tradition, just to demonstrate the sovereignty of God at work, he chose that the older would serve the younger, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. This would be the carrier of his covenant. And now through the nation of Israel comes the Messiah, Jesus. And now through Jesus, Gentiles can be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Israel, though originally chosen as the vine, now serves as a place wherein Gentile nations can be engrafted in. This is the purpose of Romans. Jesus had way more on his heart than the mere political interest of Israel for a season, awaiting the sacking of Jerusalem in just the year 70. Jesus had far more, far more on his heart than merely the political interests of Israel. He had far more on his heart than merely gaining a crowd for himself. It looked as small as a mustard seed. The most humble of movements, vastly outnumbered. But here we sit in an air-conditioned theater in leather recliners 2,000 years later reading these words. Isn't that amazing? It started off so small. If we were to go past it, on your way through Jerusalem, through Bethany, through Capernaum, wherever they were at the time, it would just look like this weird club. But that was the mustard seed that would break history in half. And now, based on the Gregorian calendar, we say what year it is, based on its proximity in history to the birth of Christ. He broke history in half. But at the, at the moment, it just looked like this son of a carpenter from Nazareth and his rabble-rouser friends. It's a mustard seed, but look at how massive we currently sit in the branches of the very tree described in the parable. This is the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's another parable. Do you want to hear another parable from Jesus? Say, yeah. yeah. Here's Matthew 13, verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until all of it was leavened. I've got a whole lot of family in the room today. Can you guys welcome the Campbells and the Odoms because they're out there? And uh, they, they, know, they know the truth behind the years that, that I, I won the state or the, the local science fair and went to state, the, the state science fair. It was all really because I took my grandmother McDill's original sourdough starter yeast and used that as the control and then fed different batches as my variables, some flour and sugar and something else, you know, some potato stuff and some, I don't know, whatever. Like I, every one of the variables is something different. And then we all know the truth, right? My mom, whom we call Little Mom, who's here today, Little Mom's the one who baked each individual loaf for me. But then, wow, man, that's the, that science fair project won me a free trip to Fort Lauderdale. And my parents sent me with a giant 12 case of Barks root beer. This was a sixth grader's dream come true. But I got to thank, I got to thank little mom. Thank you, little mom, for baking the bread for me that made the science fair project work. It taught me a great deal. Just a little bit of yeast or leaven. These are microbes can 
completely, fundamentally transform an entire loaf of bread. This might be confusing because you've seen Jesus say overtly, beware the yeast of the Pharisees, how just a little bit of legalism can then spread throughout the whole loaf. This is true. In this context, yeast is a good thing. In other contexts, yeast, like the yeast of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Pharisees, is to be completely avoided. This has roots even in the prescription of Old Testament Israelites going in the Exodus to take with them unleavened bread because just a little bit goes a long way. It starts off looking at Mormonism, for example, and saying, hey, that's kind of cool. They must really love Jesus. They wear special underwear, and they think that the Garden of Eden is in Independence, Missouri. Like, and pretty soon, you begin taking on more and more legalisms, more and more legalisms, more and more rituals and rites, and then before long, you're doing something crazy like abstaining from coffee. Can you believe it? I know. Behold the fruits of false teaching. <laughs> but in this parable, in this parable... Yeast is a good thing. And what you have is 50 pounds of flour. You see that? This woman has 50 pounds of flour, and then she mixes in just a little bit of leaven, and then it affects the entire, what must be, <laughs> what must be a massive amount of dough that will now, get this, rise. Do you see that? Aha! <laughs> It causes it to rise, and it fundamentally transforms. My skeptical friend, you came here not because you're ready to hear some expository preaching, right? You came here because you got a crush on one of my church members, and what you don't know is that she brought you here so that your tail could get saved. Welcome to the Redemption Church. We got you. Ah! You came here just to scope things out, and you have this inkling in your mind, this thought, this haunting thought, like a figure in the corner of the room that you've always known is there, whom you refuse to acknowledge, this Holy Spirit of God who has always convicted you for sin. You know that that's wrong. You've got this pesky conscience that seemed to line up hauntingly familiar and parallel with the inspired word of God that you know, that you know, that you know, that you just want to suppress the truth so that you can feel licensed for sin, and you'll believe anything, no matter how fatuous, if it lets you get off the hook for the sin in your life, excuse the sin in your life, rationalize the sin in your life, justify the sin in your life, but this one thought, this beautiful thought, is actually the beginnings of the drawing of a holy God on your heart, and that leaven, that singular inkling, that beautiful thought, maybe I need Jesus, this is about to fundamentally transform you completely. All 50 pounds of flour is about to be completely transformed into something that is elementally different on a cellular level because it infiltrates and it transforms. Now, can I talk to my believers in Christ who look at this passage and you're like, ooh, I gotta be honest. I've gotta be honest. I've cut some of the flour out because I don't want the leaven to invade this part of my life. God, you can have everything in my life just not my internet browser history. The leaven affects the whole loaf. God, you can have everything in my life, just not my marriage. I don't know how you exist that way. God, you can have everything in my life, just not my finances. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. You can have everything in my life, God, just not my career. Man, that's got to be exhausting to pretend not to be alive in Christ. You can have everything in my life, but is not surrendered to lordship. Would you merge all the annexes? 
Render all the flour into the leaven of the kingdom of heaven that 100% of your whole life is transformed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Open up every closet door in your heart and let the work of the Holy Spirit of God come rushing in. God, nothing is off limits from you. All of it is yours because you are in fact Lord and you are Lord of all of me. If he's not Lord over every aspect of your life, he's not Lord. Partial obedience is completely disobedient. Delayed obedience is immediate disobedience. Surrender because you said that he's Lord. You confessed that he's Lord. Now, is he or isn't he Lord? This is the kingdom of heaven. Just this one truth about the lordship of Jesus totally transforms every cell. Now comes the explanation of the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Jesus said in verse 34, Jesus told the crowd all these things in parables and he did not tell them anything without a parable so that what was spoken to the prophet might be fulfilled. I will open my mouth in parables. I will declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. This is a quote from Psalm 78 verse two. And it, to its original recipients, it was this teaching about wisdom from King Asaph. And it seems like it's about maybe perhaps overly emphasized kingly teachings, but it's actually prophetic. It was actually a foreshadowing of Jesus. You can't interpret the Psalms and fully appreciate the Psalms or Isaiah until you know Jesus. These were songs of praise given by God to his people. Think on this for a moment. <laughs> Imagine if I were to go to my bride, Jessie, and say, I wrote something for you. You see, I write songs for everybody in my family. Baby Autumn Grace asked me, yeah, but daddy, who wrote a song for you? I was like, well, nobody. I can't write a song for myself. And then we have, we kept one of the puppies from Luna's litter. Her name is Tula. And Autumn Grace was very quick to say, okay, now that she's part of the family, you gotta write her a song too. So I'm writing a song for a dog again. Fatherhood. But what if I were to go to my bride and say, Jesse, I have a gift for you. My bride's name is Jesse too. I didn't just have a schizophrenic fit just then, just to clarify. I'd go to Jesse and say like, I wrote you something. I've given you a list of songs about me that just extol how amazing I am. And you get to sing them to me. <laughs> Happy anniversary, baby. <laughs> that would not be right because I have sin in my life and I am far from perfect and I'm not God. But it is actually an incredible gift for the holy, omnipotent creator God to have given to us because words fail to describe his majesty and that he gives us these. And as he gives us these, he gives us Psalm 78, including verse two, which is quoted in the gospel of Matthew. It was prophetic. It was not only a song sung by those in the Old Testament in anticipation for the Messiah to come. It was a song that told about the Messiah and what he would do, including the way in which he would proclaim mysteries held secret since the beginning of the universe. It's phenomenal to behold. We, as New Testament Christians, live between the comings of Christ, the first and the second. But if you dwelt in the Old Testament era, 
which presided, by the way, over the majority of human history, even if you prescribe to the youngest of young earth theories, God still held sway over humanity, mostly so far in human history through the Old Testament. You would not have to do this thing that we do. I'm, I'm originally from the Deep South. Some of you guys hear that come out of me every now and then. All right, if you hear people with a Southern accent here today, that's my family. Right? And, and in the Deep South, we have this way of trying to acknowledge the truth of James chapter 4. If it's God's will, we'll do this and we'll do that. And we'll say this phrase. Right? If you guys want to introduce this around Seattle, it would be really funny to hear it eventually get picked up on local news. I will laugh my tail off. But if, here it goes like this. If the Lord tarries and the creek don't rise. If the Lord tarries means if it's God's will, if it happens before the second coming of Christ. We have to acknowledge the second coming of Christ because we don't know. No man knows the time or the hour. We know this. The next time a wackadoo comes out and says, like, the second coming of Jesus is going to be on April 12, 2024, we're like, great, we can rule that date out. We know that no man knows the time or the hour, but we know we live in a constantly possible state of its imminence, which means the day to repent is now. The day to confess Jesus as Lord is now because you are not guaranteed tomorrow if the Lord tarries if he waits. But in the Old Testament, you had no such provisos because you were waiting for the Messiah in his first coming. It was way easier for them to speak forward about the future, but it was way harder for them to describe the afterlife, heaven. Jesus gives us this teaching and it describes the kingdom of heaven and his use of parables further fulfills what was prophesied of old long-awaited secrets are revealed now. For generations, people looked forward to how this would happen. We see in the epistles, even the angels looked with curiosity into how God would fulfill the promises that he had made, and his name is Jesus. Now, here we are, verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. His disciples approached him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He replied, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. See, already spoiled that for you. Already knew that one. The field is the world. And the good seed, these are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one. Again, the kingdom of heaven. This will come up next. He's going to go into another parable. We've just been given an outright explanation of each of the elements in the parable. Right? We know, we know clearly based on this text, Jesus is the one who sows the seed. The field is the world, not exclusively the church. And the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one. So when you consider the implications of neglecting this aspect of the text, you see this, All right? What does this say? The field is the world. That's what Jesus said. I'm not taking interpretive liberties. I'm exercising basic reading comprehension. Do you agree? The field's not just the church, it's the whole world. So there's more at play here than true believers and false believers. True believers and false believers, that is the impetus behind the books of 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, wherein Gnostic infiltrators wrote false gospels. Okay, that's where Dan Brown got his material from. It's great, I read the Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons, they were great. I bought my book in the fiction section. That's the impetus behind 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, but that is not what's at work in this parable. The field is the whole world. There are implications to this, though. If you do view the field as the church, then you're going to think only about the demon deacons. 
I remember the first time I was a drummer at Florida State and we played Wake Forest. They have the most interesting mascot ever, the Demon Deacons. And yes, it's exactly what you think it would be. <laughs> the first time I saw the Demon Deacon mascot, I was like, I know that guy. You've seen this before. Don't think about it. Don't think about the mean person who used to collect money for the Wednesday night church dinner on the grounds with the roast beef that tasted like rubber. Don't think about the last dispute that you had with another believer. There's more at play here. The implications for interpreting this parable are tremendous if you isolate it only to the church. It's not exclusively the church. Interpreting this against Jesus' own explanation as though it were simply about the church actually narrows its scope. He overtly says that it is the world. The Pharisees were right there, and we see how they certainly would correspond to the children of the devil. Jesus would even tell them that they were the children of the devil. But when we apply our lives to this text today, we rightly, we rightly can feel convicted and wonder, do I fit the description of one of these? Do I, dis- do I, do I imitate, do I emulate one of these weeds? Am I unregenerate? Do I feel no conviction? Do I have no clue what the Holy Spirit of God is? Do I let, let sin linger in my life and never repent from it? What is the fruit, the outcome of my life? Am I sowing unto the flesh or to the spirit? If there's a lack of repentance, would you repent today? If you look at your life and you think that I'm more like the weed than I am the wheat, would you repent today? Be saved truly for the very first time today. So if we think of this as a parable only about the worst Christians we know, then it really narrows the scope. But if we consider how it is, in fact, the world, the field is the world, then it affects church outreach philosophy and your personal evangelistic life. In fact, it's immediately followed. Here's verse 47, sneak peek at our devotions this week, beginning in devotion 522, the one that Debbie was talking about with the puppies, I think was 521. Here's, here's, the, here's an upcoming parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into the sea. It collected every kind of fish. When it was full, they dragged it ashore, sat down, and gathered the good fish into the containers, but threw out the worthless ones. There it is again. The deliberate lineation between that which is chosen and that which, is, that, which, that which remains under the wrath of God. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will go out, separate the evil people from the righteous and throw them into a blazing furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There it is again with the gnashing of the teeth and no dental plan in hell. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are the angels. So when we remember the true scope that Jesus gives for this parable, it does have implications on how we evangelize, both individualistically and also as a church broadly. When we share the gospel, we share it indiscriminately. We have no control over the type of soil the seed of the gospel lands upon. We saw this in our small group curriculum this past week, right? Raise your hand if you heard this story in small group this past week. I see my small group. You guys out? Better all have your hands up. (laughs) Right? We know there's the path false teaching swoops in. There's the rocky soil. looks great at first and then withers away. The thorns. There's a lot of thorny soil around here. We just kind of lean upon our wealth and the things of this world. We get caught up in the stuff of this world. But there is the fourth type of soil that bears fruit 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. We have no control over what type of soil we cast the seed upon, but we have been commissioned by Jesus to make disciples of all nations. How can they call upon the God they've not believed in? How can they believe unless they hear? How can they hear unless someone preaches? How can they preach unless they are sent? 
You are sent. To be a Christian is to be sent. You have no control over the status of the heart, the soil. You don't know if you're producing wheat. You don't know, but what you do know is that your Savior has sent you out. So you cast the net broad. You don't try to pluck up the weeds among the wheat. You leave that up to God who over and over with absolute clarity has said, I will sort this out at the end of the age. God is the one who distinguishes true believers from false believers, the children of God from the children of the devil. In John 8, Jesus goes, just goes off on the Pharisees and outright describes them as children of the devil. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he's a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you don't want to believe me. Who among you can convict me of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who is from God listens to God's words. This is why you don't listen, because you're not from God. Jesus says overtly that he who has ears, and some manuscripts include the words to hear, let him listen. They didn't listen because they're not from God. Here's 1 John 3.10. This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Speaking about true believers versus the Epicurean or Stoic infiltrators from Gnosticism. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the ones, one who does not love his brother or sister. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives in verse 40 this clothing this closing of the of the parable therefore just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire so it will be at the end of the age the son of man will send out his angels and they will gather from his kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness it's a profound image about the second coming of christ the reaping of the saints from among the earth it's overt and it's clear. Revelation 14, verses 14 through 20 describes, then I looked and there was a white cloud and one like the son of man was seated on the cloud with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple crying out in a loud voice to the one who was seated on the cloud, use your sickle and reap for the time to reap has come since the harvest of the earth is ripe. So the one seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. Then another angel who had a sharp sickle came out of the temple and heaven yet another angel who had authority over fire came from the altar and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the vineyard of the earth because its grapes have ripened so the angel swung his sickle at the earth and gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the earth and he threw them into the great wine press outside the city the blood flowed out of the press up to the horse's bridles for about 180 miles this is what Jesus is prophesying. This harvest of the angels sent out to reap those who belong to Christ and those who remain under the wrath of God by default. Verse 43, however, literally shines in stark contrast. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. I gotta say that again. I got to say that again, and then you got to say amen real loud, because that's awesome. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Amen. Let anyone who has ears listen. 
So did you hear that? Do you have ears? Are you from God? Do you have and dwelling within you the Holy Spirit by which we know that we are his? The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if his children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him, we are co-heirs, members of the same body and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This beautiful promise of a day wherein we'll be gathered into the barn, gathered into the home of our Father. That's where all of our hopes rest. Not in money, not in earth, not in politicians, not in your career, not in your spouse, certainly not in yourself, not in your children. It's in heaven alone, amen? That's where moth and rust do not destroy thieves, cannot break in and steal. Nothing, nothing, nothing can take that inheritance away where we will be gathered and taken in. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in your master's happiness. That day where the wheat are gathered in, but if you are uncertain right here and now, would you, in beautiful spirit-guided introspection, consider the state of your soul before God? Would you look to this incredible text, then the righteous will shine like the sun. Does that sound good to anybody who's a weary sinner, sick of the wretchedness whereby you don't understand what you do. You know what's right and you know what's wrong. And then you and I having the Holy Spirit of God still at times will fall into sin and do what is wrong. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death, this beautiful promise of that day, forever redeemed, sanctified, glorified forevermore. That sounds amazing to me, that I would shine with the very righteousness of Jesus. Raise your hand if that sounds good to your sin-weary soul, that the righteous will shine like the sun in, in whose kingdom? Whose kingdom? Say it loud. Their fathers. Say it loud. I'll do, I'll do the circle. You guys like the circle thing, don't you? Whose kingdom? The fathers. Your fathers. You're a co-heir with Christ. All right? You were adopted, obviously. But... He's your father, and by the Spirit of God, you can call him father. That you would count it as a co-heir with Christ means that on that day, you would shine like the sun in righteousness. Glorification at last rid of the sin nature that torments. Christian, would you repent of every last lingering sin? You are wheat. Stop acting like a stupid weed. We have too many people to reach here. If you're uncertain of the state of your soul, would you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, confess Jesus as Lord right here? Let's stand together as we close. We're gonna have a team right here at the front to pray with you for absolutely anything in the world that you need prayer for. If you need prayer because you're getting ready to share your faith this week, you come forward, please let our team pray over you. Whatever the case is, you come forward and you pray. You come forward and you pray. But I'm gonna pray on behalf of my skeptical friend who came here and heard the text and sees his own reflection in the text. Let's go before God. God, this parable terrifies me a little bit because if I'm honest, I'm kind of like the weed. I'm not one of yours but I know your Holy Spirit is drawing upon my soul today and I feel 
deep conviction from my sin. I'm so sorry for the sin in my life, God. I know, I know that you are the Lord of the harvest. I know that the wages of my sin is death. And I know that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe you, Jesus. I believe that you alone are the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no way I can come to God the Father except through Jesus. And so now, drawn upon by the Holy Spirit of God, my name written in his book before the foundations of the earth, I confess with my mouth the truth that Jesus is Lord. Redemption Church, would you say, Jesus is Lord? Say it, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now God, in Romans 10, 9, I am saved, saved, saved. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. If that's you, would you let us know in the connect card in the cup holders next to you or online at redemptionwashington.com because we got to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you, my friend, would you worship your Lord and Savior with your new church family for the very first time as a new believer?
love you Redemption Church. I love you forever. Go share the gospel with somebody this week. Amen? Amen. Amen.